This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. A woman named Leota Gross used to send birthday cards in her brother's memory to a man named Wade Howard. Howard had killed her brother, Doy Coffer, on March 15, 1993, the same week that Scott County and Highway Patrol investigators were taking statements from jailhouse informants regarding the Michelle Lawless murder. Leota is no longer living, but she told a Southeast Missourian reporter in 2001 that she would send the birthday cards as a reminder of the life that Howard took, the life of her brother. Wade Howard was charged in 1993 with first-degree murder. Howard was 29 years old back then. Coffer was his stepfather. Howard shot his victim with the 30-30 deer rifle when Coffer had returned to the mobile home they had shared in Minor, Missouri, near Sykeston, in Scott County. Howard confessed to the crime and pleaded guilty. After shooting his 46-year-old stepfather with a rifle, he told police he kicked him in the face with his cowboy boot. I don't have the evidence files in this case, but newspaper reporting noted that evidence against Howard included a pipe wrench with blood and hair on it discovered in the trailer. Howard took $400 from his stepfather's wallet. He took his driver's license and a 22 pistol. Then he stole his stepfather's truck and drove to Paducah, Kentucky, where he got a motel room. Coffer's body was found four days later when family members broke down his door. Now Howard was charged with first-degree murder, and then he was put in the Scott County jail cell with Josh Keezer. By the time 2001 rolled around, Leota would send those cards. She and other family members would attend parole hearings where she would advocate against the release of her brother's murderer. By that time, Wade Howard was about halfway through a 15-year sentence. Wade Howard was not convicted of first-degree murder. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, a deal he made with then-prosecutor Christy Baker Neal. The charge was lowered on the condition that he testify against Josh in the murder of Michelle Lawless. Wade Howard went from looking at a life sentence without parole to 15 years. Leota was never contacted by Scott County regarding this plea deal, and she was plenty upset to learn that her brother's killer would not serve a longer sentence. She was even more upset when she learned that the reason wasn't because the case wasn't strong enough, but because he gave up information on another murder. Quote, it's as if one victim's life is more valuable than another victim's, Gross told the newspaper. The Southeast Missourian story came out at a time when Farrell and Baker Neal were feuding publicly. Farrell was claiming that too many charges were being resolved via plea deal. The allegation against Baker Neal was that she was not equipped to handle the high-profile cases. But that wasn't the case here with Wade Howard. The newspaper quoted Baker Neal saying Sheriff Bill Farrell asked her to plead Howard's charges down. The article stated it was the only time she could recall him requesting a reduced charge for a suspect. I was kind of surprised, she was quoted as saying. He laid in wait and shot the guy. Unquote. Farrell acknowledged that he may have made that request, but he insisted that Howard came to them with the information. Farrell further stated, quote, He was not promised anything. We wouldn't have traded off his case for another case, unquote. But Leota Gross said that's exactly what Baker Neal had told her what happened. In late March and early April of 1993, Bill Farrell thought he had enough. He had the four snitches, he had Mark Abbott putting Josh Keezer at the crime scene, but that began to unravel in June when the two jailhouse informants from Cape Girardeau County tried to come clean. Fortunately for the Scott County Sheriff's Department, Wade Howard provided a statement on August 8th saying that Josh Keezer had told him that he had killed Michelle Lawless. Of course, that never happened. 
But did Wade Howard come to them with information as Farrell described in the article? Not according to child molester Jeff Rogers, who allegedly made an initial statement against Josh but later declined to testify. Rogers told Josh's attorneys later that Farrell and Shivitz both attempted to get he and Howard to testify against Josh. He told Josh's attorneys that Farrell induced him and Howard. In other words, they didn't simply come forward to offer information. Rogers told Josh's attorneys that Farrell promised to help him with his pending charges if he cooperated, and then also made threats to hurt his interest if he did not. Howard would tell Rosner before the trial started, quote, Later, when the deputies took me to Sheriff Farrell's office, I was in the room with Sheriff Farrell and Deputy Brenda Shivitz, and they told me they wanted a statement about Josh Keezer killing the lawless girl. Sheriff Farrell pressured and intimidated the hell out of me and made it clear to me that he just wanted me to say that Keezer killed Lawless or that Keezer said he killed Lawless or the like. Because I was afraid about what would happen, I just answered Farrell's questions like he wanted to hear. I wasn't physically abused, but I was really nervous. So Wade tried to come clean too, before the trial, but he wasn't about to give up his sweet deal. Wade was lying, and it didn't just affect justice for Michelle Lawless and for Josh Keezer. It affected justice for Doy Coffer, Howard's murder victim, and Leota, and all of Coffer's family too. Deals were flying around everywhere. Despite the claims otherwise, promises were being made and kept regarding testimony in exchange for plea deals. They were making deals with a murderer and a child molester. Make no mistake, the Scott County Sheriff's Department was desperate to convict Josh Keezer for the murder of Michelle Lawless. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. These stories about Joshua that I told police, Wyndham and Farrell, were completely false. I only did it because I thought they would help me with my criminal charges and maybe give me a reward. Extremely difficult to prove to people your innocence when they compile so much manure against you. And it was, that's what it was. It was manure. He asked you how your trip went. He asked you some, maybe some small talk questions, but he did not ask you anything about your whereabouts or anything of that nature. No, I was never questioned. I was never directly questioned about the murder. On the transport, they asked me a question about the murder. They brought up the murder. And that's when I got, that's when I got a very uneasy feeling and I got real quiet. But as far as ever being questioned or asked, where were you? Did you know her? You know, are you capable of something like this? No one ever asked me any questions to ascertain who I was, my capabilities, my location, motives, anything. Who charges somebody with a murder with no motive? Well, not just no motive, but not even trying to figure out a motive. Yeah, they didn't even try to figure out a motive. They didn't even investigate a motive. Why? Again, because they knew there was no motive. They knew I was innocent. And I believe, I believe, it's my right to have a belief about this, I believe Bill Farrell knew who killed Angela Lawless, and he knew it wasn't me, and he was covering for them. I think it's beyond an I believe. I believe it's factual. It's factual. They knew I did not 
kill Angela Michelle Wallace. Bill Farrell knew it. Brenda Shivitz knew it. Wes Berg knows it. Kenny Holsoff knew it at the time. His investigators knew it. Everyone knew it. Pretty much every citizen of Scott County knows it. And yet I did 16 years in prison for it. And Angela has never gotten the justice she deserves because of it. Because when you know someone's innocent, you also probably know who did it. And that's unacceptable. Hi, I'm Tyler Grafe, co-producer for the Lawless Files podcast. We want to remind everyone that you can support our work by going to thelawlessfiles.com. There you'll find all sorts of bonus content from blogs to timelines to full interviews. We'd also like to take a moment to give a shout out of sorts. Both Bob and I are former newspaper journalists, and we both worked at the Southeast Missourian for several years. The Lawless Files podcast owes a debt of gratitude to the journalists and news organizations who covered this case over the years, particularly the Southeast Missourian newspaper and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Newspaper journalists did an important job of getting officials on the record and holding officials accountable way back into the 1990s. And we just like to say that local journalism is important. If you want podcasts like this one 20 years from now, please support your local journalists, no matter where you live. Before we return to the episode, we'd like to say that all this work is done in memory of Michelle Lawless, who lost her life and voice on November 8, 1992. The work is dedicated to the many abused women who are connected to the characters in this story and who shared their experiences with us. You won't hear all their names, but we honor them for their courage and thank them for their trust. They brought me into the county jail. Uh, they gave me a phone call. I called my Aunt Kathy. And my cousin James picked up the phone. I'm panicking. I'm telling James, I need to talk to his mother. I've just been charged with a murder I did not commit. My cousin being my cousin and knowing me thought I was pranking him. So he proceeded to use an expletive and tell me to shut up. And I said, and I let him know, no, I'm serious. And I was crying and he knew. So he yelled for his mom. My aunt got on the phone. I told her what was going on. She panicked because she knew it was not true and told me she would, you know, take care of it. Let everybody know, you know, contact my dad, my mom, my grandparents, everybody that, you know, they'd be, they'd be down to see me as soon as possible and, and everything. And that's you know the, the process got started at that point um i remember them telling me i had learned something about the day of it and i knew that i wasn't there and i knew some of the people i was with were in the gang that i was in mm -hmm. so i called them i used that as my other phone call I was like hey man you guys need to help me and they told me no wow. that was officially my last day in the gang because i i was like i'm done with you yeah, then they, they they brought me in, they booked me. They they took uh, a fingerprints and gave me some mug shots. They put me in one cell and pulled me out of that cell. 
put me in another cell. First, they put me in a cell with all white guys, pulled me out of that cell. Then they put me in a cell with all black guys. Then they pulled me out of that cell. Literally, what I mean by put me in and pull me out, I mean like two minutes maybe in each one. Like, you know, well, I put him in here. No, get him out of there. Well, I put him in here. No, get him out of there. And then they put me, um, they had one protective custody cell um, that they put like um, people who were in danger or snitches or people like that uh, in the back of the jail um, next to the um, uh, a cell where inmates lived in that didn't like the cleaning. The guys in the, the prison, the inmates who passed out the food and mopped and and, and things of that nature, mm-hmm. uh, they they had like these like two cells in this one little block, and they put me in that one. They put me in the one with the the snitches and the people who are scared or in danger. And we now know why they put me in, and they everybody they put in there with me pretty much either gave or offer or whatever um state's testimony against me um we now know that what in fact had happened um through the handful of months before i was transferred to um, saint genevieve county um bill farrell had called many of them into his office and offered them deals Wade Howard, Jeff Rogers, and another man named Joseph. I can't remember Joseph's last name. He offered them deals. And we know Wade Howard took the deal, even though Wade Howard took the deal, then recanted, and then recanted his recantation. But they gave him a deal. Here's a guy that shot his father. And and what what it transpired is Bill Farrell had called them into his office and had pre written statements. And told them if they signed this and say that it was them, that this is what they said, this is what they heard, that they get these deals. Um, Joseph, now that so I'm clear, okay. from the beginning, from what I'm told, Joseph told him no. But Wade Howard said yes. Jeff Rogers says he said no. And we know this happened because in Howard's first recantation, he talks about it. And in Roger's later testimony in my 2008 hearing, he talked about it. They kept me in jail for a number of days with no legal representation. In order to get the public defender's services at that point, you had to fill out a applica- an application. But usually um, at that point, how that process took place is they they would find out on, on the docket that you're in the jail. They would visit you. They would give you the application. And then you'd fill it out, maybe right in front of them. And then they can represent you. They wouldn't allow Bill Farrell and West Drury and others wouldn't allow them to see me. Here's how I know that. One of the people in my cell was represented by one of them, was represented by the public defender's office. They, the public defender's office, 
gave them an application, gave this person an application. I can't remember who it was. It was a long time ago. And the person then handed me the application and said that, fill that out. And then when they come back in and see me, I'll give it to them. And then they can force them to, you know, to allow them to see you. So they wouldn't even let me apply for legal assistance. They just kept me in there. They didn't question me, nothing. They just kept me in there. And um, if memory serves me correctly, I had no legal representation, no official, real legal representation at my arraignment hearing where I was charged and asked if I was guilty or innocent. I said, not guilty. I may have had somebody standing there next to me. I don't remember it. But I, what I do know is that when the public defender's office finally came in to see me, it was a man. He told me, Josh, I can't help you. You need more than me. He, 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 he let me know how, how, how in danger I was. He made it clear that they were, they were going to do anything they could to convict me. And I needed more firepower. I needed a better attorney. So my mother um, had known about Albert Lowe's and um, told my grandparents about him. And my grandparents pretty much saved the day. They, or they tried to, they paid the man. Fifty thousand dollars. The man ended up buying for, or at least they had the appearance of it. He bought a new Cadillac with that money. And uh, David Rosner worked with Al Lowe's, and David was the guy that came in and seen me on a regular. He was, he was the attorney that came in and questioned me, and spent time with me, that spoke to me, and he really had the most knowledge of the case, didn't he? David was the most yes. He was the most well-informed attorney on my defense. Al Lowe's died in 2019. I didn't get the chance to interview him. I'll say this about Lowe's. He was a curmudgeon. He cussed in the courtroom. He was irreverent toward the victim, Michelle, using turns of phrases that were insensitive, even rude. Lowe's made a lot of mistakes along the way in the defense of Josh Kieser. If Al Lowe's job was to provide reasonable doubt, I believe he did that. But Lowe's lacked foresight. He lacked key knowledge and preparation to handle certain situations that came up. Simply, he didn't do enough. Lowe's put his protege, Rosner, in charge of the investigation and all of the interviews. Rosner was brand new to the law profession. I had the opportunity to interview David Rosner at his office in St. Genevieve, Missouri, about an hour or maybe a little more north of Benton. This is the same town in which the trial took place. When I arrived at his office, three pugs greeted me with wagging tails from behind a gate in the kitchen down the hallway. Rosner is a tall man, wavy hair parted at the side. I had no idea what to expect from him. He had such a big role in this case. The Kieser case has haunted him. And I knew that. But it's what he learned after the Kieser trial that is some of the most incendiary information that I've come to learn about Scott County's toxic underground. We'll get into that in a future episode. But like his previous boss, Rosner speaks with a blue-collar flair. 
He chain-smoked as I sat in his office asking him questions. The guy couldn't handle it. He was living on the streets. He was hanging around with Sean Mangus, Chucky Weisinger, Steve Graw, some Stacy Reed was another one. Mm-hmm. There, you know, these shitheads that yeah. were down on. And Josh was struggling. You know, yeah. he didn't. He, he yeah. was just hand to mouth trying to eat right. and survive. Right. On his own at 17 years old or something. These three guys all got holed up in jail, and it hit the newspapers about this death. So three or four months after the death, it hadn't been solved, and there was more press, more press. They got, they told me, all three of them told me they got a hold of some newspapers, and that Brenda Shivitz and Farrell even went up there and saw them and gave them newspapers. Oh, my gosh. And, and just let them read the newspapers, and then they went back and talked to them later, and they said, oh, yeah, we know Josh. He said he killed this girl. Okay. Now, when Josh's name got brought up, Bill Farrell got excited because Albert Lowe's had represented the biggest pot dealer in Scott County who was dating Joni Keezer when Josh was six, seven, eight years old. He wouldn't play games with, or wouldn't play the game with Farrell, you know. Who, who, to, is, who is this? I can't remember the guy's name. Okay. Josh might remember who his mom was living with the drug. We could ask him here in a minute. Yeah. But the drug dealer got busted by Farrell's office and was getting prosecuted for pop distribution. Joni was the main witness. Lowe's was representing this guy, so when it came up to his preliminary hearing, or may have been a trial, I think it was a preliminary hearing, Joni refused to testify. And all along, Farrell was telling her, I'm going to take your kid away if you don't do the right thing and testify against this guy. And then she ultimately refused to testify. Oh, wow. And Joni told me that he threatened her that I'll see to it that boy's taken from you sooner or later for this, you fucking no good bitch and all this shit. So So he, he had a pass with Joni? He was pissed at Joni because she wouldn't testify against this pot dealer that Scott County was trying to oh, pop out of there. So when these dudes brought up Josh Keezer, it was just like, woohoo! This is a vulnerable target. And away we go. It was fucking horrible, Bob. It was the biggest frame up, awful job. I was firmly convinced from day one, he had no, no clue. You know, I went and saw him at Scott County Jail. You go see him up here in St. Jen, too, and he was scared out of his mind. On April 9, 1993, my former newspaper, the Southeast Missourian, ran a headline at the top of page one. Arrest made in lawless death, 18-year-old accused of killing woman along I-55 near Benton. While Josh toiled in prison, first waiting with no representation, Scott County's investigation came almost to a halt at least as far as the investigative reports I could find. On April 28th, Shivitz and Wyndham interviewed Amanda Jury again. She told them she didn't think Josh knew Michelle. She told them they dated for a few months in the summer of 1992. Jury would tell police that she thought maybe Christy Nail, owner of the white car, might have known more than she was letting on. Police had no reason to believe that Amanda Jury was lying. 
but they gave her a polygraph anyway. The machine found Amanda to be truthful. Again, there are at least a dozen reasons why Mark Abbott should have been polygraphed, and he was not. But when it came to Josh Kieser and his ex-girlfriend, put her on a polygraph. Later in Josh's trial, Amanda Jury said some interesting things. I want to play a reenactment from what Amanda Jury said in the trial. What you're about to hear is the questioning by Al Lowe's of Amanda Jury. Miss Jury, you've been interviewed by the Scott County Sheriff's people a couple or three times, have you not? Yes, sir. One time they told you if Josh Kieser was convicted of murder, you'd be in line for a $10,000 reward. Yes. And when they were interviewing you, they wanted you to say that you thought Josh Kieser killed Michelle, didn't they? No. Did you ever give a statement to that effect? Yes, and whenever I did, they were like asking me the question in a different way a couple of times, and they got me all confused. All right. Do you confuse easily? Yes. Now, if I follow you, the last time that you saw Josh Kieser in southeast Missouri was, you say, late August or early September? Yes. That'd be about two months before, or a little better, before the 7th of November? Yes. And you never saw him with a gun, did you? No, if he did, it was hidden somewhere, but I never saw one. And you knew Michelle Wallace, didn't you? Yes, she was a senior when I was a freshman in high school. That was at Kelly High? Yes. As far as you know, Josh Keezer didn't know Michelle Wallace, did he? Not that I know of. Mr. you gave a deposition in this case on August 9th, 1993, did you not, down at the Benton Courthouse? Yes. Let me ask you, ma'am, were these questions asked of you... And did you give these answers? Page 17, begin on line 8. Q. Somehow or another, the police had the idea that Christy Nail's car had been used. A. Christy had an extra key to her car, and it was hidden underneath either the license plate or the fender or something. Just me and her knew where it was. Josh also knew because one time, me and her locked the keys in the car, but we got them out. Do you remember that question being asked and you giving that answer? Yes. Let me continue on. Q. 15 or 20 other people would know where that key was, too. A. Yes. Was that question asked you, and did you give that answer? Yes, I did. So was that true back when you told us that back in August of 1993? Just about anybody would probably know where it was, but the only people that I knew was me and Christy and whoever else was with us. But you did answer the question to 15 or 20 other people would know about that, at that time. And that was your answer? Yes? Yes, I did. You were told, were you not, when you were interviewed by Brenda Shivitz and Bill Farrell that they wanted you to say that Josh Keezer killed Michelle? No. Miss Drury, did you give this statement? When I was interviewed by the police, it seemed like they, namely Brenda Shivitz and Bill Farrell, just wanted me to say that Josh Keezer killed Michelle. I was enticed by them by the possibility of receiving the $10,000 reward. Did you give that statement when you were interviewed on July 11th, 1993, by David Rosner and my son, Albert Lowe's, too? Yes, I said that, but that is not what I meant. But you did say that they gave you an opportunity to make any corrections? He told me to look over it. Now, is this your writing down here, your own handwriting, which I'm about to read? I have given, and I have read the above statement consisting of six pages and 26 numbered paragraphs, and I hereby state that it is accurate and true to the best of my knowledge and belief. Signed, Amanda Nicole Drury. Yes. 
Is that your writing? Yes, it is. I have nothing further. Amanda Drury said under oath she was enticed by a reward and that she felt pressured by the sheriff. She was Josh's ex-girlfriend. She said she was not aware and did not know if her ex-boyfriend knew the victim. She seemed nervous to give the same answers to the jury that she gave in the deposition in July of 1993. After the interview of Amanda Drury, the county and the state's investigation went quiet for a while. But Rosner got to work. He went up to Kankakee and talked to Josh's friends and family. If you remember from an earlier episode, Josh explained that his cousin and his cousin's girlfriend had been involved in an accident. And Josh went to check on them a little too late in the evening. He was kind of shooed away, but told his cousins were fine and he could talk to them the following day. Rosner's checked on these alibis. Later in May, on May 10th, one of the jail informants, Steve Graw, had his bail lowered from $50,000 to $3,000 due to his statement against Josh. On June 26, Rosner went to interview Sean Mangus. It was a good day for Josh's defense. Even though Josh's grandparents paid a large sum of money for Al Lowe's and his team to defend their grandson, money was still an issue. Josh's case was not the only case Rosner was assigned to. Once Rosner began to understand his client was innocent, and I mean really innocent and not just a defendant entitled to a good defense, Rosner began pouring his time and effort into this case. I mean lots of time. And as Rosner tells it, it was too much time for Al Lowe's liking. Time was an issue. Money was an issue. After all, time is money. So when it was time for Rosner to go interview some of the informants who were telling these stories on Josh, Lowe's made the decision to send Rosner alone. Rosner didn't like that idea, and he pushed against it but the decision was out of his hands. And that decision ended up backfiring in a big way against Josh. Anyway, on June 26th, informant Sean Mangus gave a statement to David Rosner saying the story about Josh Keezer killing Lawless was conspired by the group in the jail. That was a good day indeed for Josh's defense. It was a huge moment. It's not every day you get a key state's witness to admit he lied to police. A couple of weeks later, the Southeast Missourian reported that Josh pleaded not guilty to the charge of unlawful use of a weapon in Cape Girardeau County. This charge stemmed from an alleged incident on Halloween night in which a small group of people were leaving a Cape Girardeau bar and were verbally assaulted while leaving the bar as they were walking to their vehicle. They described a man with face paint having flashed a gun at them as words were exchanged. They came forward after seeing Josh's picture in the newspaper saying the man they saw several months earlier wearing the face paint was Josh Keezer. This was the third charge levied against Josh Keezer. All of them were false accusations. This case would be dropped later as well. Around that same time, Kelly Church, another of the informants, was released from custody. He left the state of Missouri and he was not asked to testify against Kieser and had no further involvement in the case. And then August came. August of 1993 was a big month for the case. On August 8th, Wade Howard, the man who killed his stepfather, came forward to say Kieser shot Lawless because Michelle would not go out with him. And then a day later, on August 9th, on Mark Abbott's birthday, he was brought in for a deposition. You're about to listen to a reenactment of that deposition. Your full name, please. Mark Thomas Abbott. 
You have a twin brother, don't you? What's his name? Matt. Where is Matt? He's at work. You live by yourself? No, with Missy Williams. Missy Williams? Yeah. What have you been convicted of? DWI. How many? I don't know, three, four. You got a driver's license now? No. When'd you get hit on the last one? I don't know. I have no idea. About when? Hell, I don't know. Six months ago? First of November, 92. Did you have a driver's license? Uh-uh. Were you driving? Uh-huh. Anybody charge you with a crime for driving with no driver's license? No. All right. Do you know Josh Keezer? No. Where were you on Friday night, November 7th, 1992? Country nights. And how did you get there? Drove. You drove? Uh-huh. With no driver's license? Uh-huh. Anybody go with you? No. What did you drive? S10. That's a little pickup. Black? Uh-huh. The Chevy or Ford or what? Chevy. What time did you get down there? I think about 11. I ain't even sure. It's been so long ago. 11 p.m. You leave from Scott City? Yeah, I guess. I really don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I did. Well, all right. Let's do it this way. Were you living in Scott City then? Yeah, I might have went up to Cape, you know. You know about what time you would have left? Yeah. About when? Probably about 11. From Scott City? Yeah. Your quarters? Yeah. Did you go to Cape or not? I can't really recall. I don't know. All right. What had you been doing up until the time you left? About 11 o'clock. I worked. You worked until 10 or so? Yeah, on rental property. Who has rental property? We do. Your mom and dad? Yeah. Larry, and what's your mother's name? Reba. In Scott City? Yeah, Woodland. Do they still operate that healthy selfie filling station down there in Scott City near the interstate? Yeah. Was anybody helping you? No, there wasn't. Remember what you'd been doing? Yeah, I was fixing hot water elements. Hot water elements? Yeah. Did you get come in and get cleaned up and head out? Yeah. Why would you go to Sky City and run the risk of driving much further? The cops catch you again. Why wouldn't you stay in Sky City? What are you talking about? Why would you go to Sykeston? Sykeston? Yeah. I don't know. I just like to go to Sykeston at Country Nights. Who did you see there? Lots of people. I want names. Heather Pierce. Anyone else? I don't know. Will Morris. Remember anyone else? Heather Pierce's mother. That's it. That's all I remember. What did you do there? Dance. Did you drink anything there? Yeah, I drank a couple. Beer, whiskey, gin? Beer. Rosner didn't know this at the time necessarily, but this statement right here had a boatload of discrepancies, and I wanted to fill you in on some of those. We would later learn that Mark Abbott didn't go straight to Country Nights from Cape Girardeau or Scott City that night. In fact, earlier that night, he went to Commerce, Missouri to pick up his friend Kevin Williams. Remember, Kevin Williams was the guy mentioned by Ray Ring as being one of Mark's asshole friends who liked to fight. 
So Mark left that out that he went to Commerce before going to Sykeston. Furthermore, Mark left out how he wound up at the scene in a car when he was driving his S10. And he left out what he had told Bobby Wooten, that he had been at a party in Sykeston that night with Ray Ring. It's easy looking back at this with 2020 vision and pick everything apart. Kieser's attorneys asked some good questions, but I think they also missed some opportunities in this deposition and later on. They failed to really pin down where Mark went after the murder. Roy Moore's statement about interacting with the Abbott twin who was driving a car and not a truck should have been a great opportunity to pick apart Abbott's credibility. I won't get into the details here, but we will be releasing a separate bonus episode breaking down Mark Abbott's route that night. At different times, Mark said he went straight home and directly to Heather Pierce's house. In the bonus episode, we will show it would have been impossible for Mark to have switched vehicles and make it to Heather Pierce's house by 2 a.m. that night. There's just no way he could have been in two different vehicles. If Roy Moore's report about the Abbott's vehicle at the crime scene is accurate, it's basically proof that Matt Abbott and not Mark was the one who walked into the sheriff's office that night and returned to the scene. Additionally, Josh's attorneys did not nail down Mark Abbott's complete whereabouts before the murder. We know country nights. But what about before that? Unfortunately for Josh, his attorneys didn't have the Wooten report where Mark stated he met Ray Ring at the party that earlier that evening. Anyway, this is one of the first depositions that Lowe's did that summer. In all, they deposed 30 people. The depositions were held on four occasions, on August 9th, August 24th, September 20th, and September 27th. Now let's look at what Kevin Williams said in 1993. Let's take a listen. Here's a reenactment from testimony given by Williams. Full name, please. Kevin Wayne Williams. How old are you? 26. Where do you live? Commerce, Missouri. River didn't get you? Not my house. It almost got my business. What's your line of work, sir? I own my own business. I have a body shop. Kevin's repairing auto body. How long have you been doing that? A year. You married? Yes. What's your wife's name? Terry Lynn Williams. That's T-E-R-R-I. I want to talk to you about the events and what you were doing on the 7th of November last year. That would be Friday and then into Saturday morning the 8th. That was the approximate time the lawless girl got herself done in. Yes. You know where you were Friday night? Yes. Where was you? I was at Carl Howell's. C-A-R-L-H-O-W-E-L-L. That's a girl? No, it's a man. He owns Howell's Trucking. House Trucking? Yeah, in Scott City. That's who I was working for at the time. What time did you get to Mr. Howe's? Was it at his quarters? Yes. In Scott City? He lives on Route 1 outside of Scott City. Which direction? Toward Commerce. He lives about two miles from Commerce. Got my days of the week screwed up. Saturday and early in a Sunday morning. Yeah. Were you still with him on Saturday night? Me and my wife left about 1 or 1.30 in the morning from his house. On a Saturday then? Yes. It was the night she got... The night she got killed. That's the night we're talking about. Is what we was all there for and the families. About how many employees did he have? Five or six. And this was at his residence? Yes. You left there about one, one thirty. Yes. You would have gotten home about what time? Five, ten minutes later? Not very long. 
took about five or ten minutes to get from there to my house. It's only a few miles. You know Mark Abbott? Yes. Mark Abbott talked to you that night? No. The night of the 7th or the night of the 8th? He talked to me the following day. Sunday, I guess it was. What did he tell you? He just told me what had happened Saturday night. He told me he'd found the girl at the exit ramp there. Tell you anything else? He told me... He just told me that he pulled up behind the car. He got off the exit ramp there, pulled up behind the car and went up to the car because it wouldn't move because the lights was running and everything. And he seen what had happened, so he went straight down to the cut mark there right there below the hill and got on the payphone and tried to call the police station. The car pulled up beside him and told him that he needed to go with them or something like that. So he got scared and jumped in the truck and went to the police station up at Benton. That's all he told me about it. Did he say he went directly to the police station or went home first? No. He said he went straight to the police station after he left the payphone. After he allegedly went to the cop shop, did he say where he went? No. Did he say where he had been? He told me he'd been down at Sykes in that Country Nights, I think. One of the bars down there. Did you know he had been to so many bars and he don't have himself a driver's license anymore? Yes. That doesn't stop him from driving? I don't guess. It would me. I've lost mine before. I know how it is. My sister's living with him right now. She's been living with him about a year, I guess, and she's pregnant by him. What's her name? Melissa Ann Williams. Well, she's been living with him, and she's pregnant. I take it she was along with him when he went down there? No. You've since learned when he left there, he allegedly didn't go home to be with her, did he? I don't know if he did or not. There ain't no telling. He's kind of wild or was. I don't know. I ain't talked to him in a few weeks now. I don't associate with him too much. I'm busy at my business. Uh-huh. Do you know Heather or Glenna Pierce, mother and daughter? No. For what it's worth, he says he was with them down at Country Nights, and then, instead of going home, he went up to their quarters here in Cape that night. Glenna and Heather Pierce... It might be their name, but I know he was seeing a girl. Is she blonde-headed? Yes, sir. Might have been who it was then. I know he had seen her a few times down at Country Nights. Do you know Marvin Lawless? Marvin Lawless? Yes. How are you acquainted with Mr. Lawless? He does body work and stuff, too. I've been down to his shop before. Did you know his girl, Angela Michelle? No. How long have you been married? Six years. We've already covered Heather Pierce. That's the girl? That's her name now that I've thought about it. Glenda Pierce, her mother. Do you know her? I met her down here. I know it was her and her mother was always down there. Me and Mark used to... I used to go with him a lot down there. We used to run around together. That's when he met them too, when I was with him. Running around. You know Mark Abbott? You know Matt? Yes. You know a Roy Ring? No. Ray Ring? Uh-uh. Vince Howard? No. Gary Arnzen, then. A-R-N-Z-E-N. From Scott City? Yeah. Yeah. How are you acquainted with Mr. Arzen? We went to school together. When is the earliest you learned of this lawless murder? The following day, that following Sunday. What time were you called? I don't know. I don't remember. From Mark Abbott? Tell you the truth, I don't remember if it was from him. I think it was from him, but I'm not for sure. After this murder happened, 
or a day or two before, would he have been down at your quarters? No, don't believe he was. All right. We subpoenaed your telephone records, you understand? Yeah. That's your number, 264-3505? Yes. You know what that number is, don't you? The trailer place. Over in Dexter? Yeah. Who would have called on that day before this murder, or two days, from your number? It would have been me. And the day of the murder, or at least something, it probably happened shortly after midnight, at least Saturday, two calls over there. Would those have been you? Probably, yes. I called over there almost every day. That's where he was working at the time. Mark? Yes. And then here on the 11th, there is four, excuse me, five phone calls made on the 11th from your phone number. Four of them about a minute long, one six minute long. Would you have called him? Yes, probably. About what? That's when we was running around and we was real good friends then. We was running around. In fact, I would have been with him the night he found that girl, but I had to go to a barbecue because my wife was wanting to go to it and we went out every weekend. You would call him. What day would that have been? Tuesday, I guess? You would have called five times? Well, the ones that was only a minute long was probably Lee answered the phone. Mark was busy or something, so I'd just keep returning the call until I got a hold of him. Looks like you got a hold of him six minutes at 9.17 a.m. Six minutes. Then the rest are all in the afternoon. Then the last one about 4.41. That's about what time. He was getting off about 5 o'clock. I even went and got him from work a couple times. We'd go messing around. We was real good friends then, you know. Did Mark Abbott tell you that Ray Ring wanted to talk to you or talk to him? Maybe talk to him. He never said he wanted to talk to me. There was a written report by Trooper Wyndham on 11:25. He later reported talking with Mark Abbott. This sentence. Abbott said Terry and Kevin Williams told him Ray Ring wanted to talk to him. Abbott then thought the subject he saw that night could have possibly been Ray Ring. My wife told him that. Somebody called the house or something. She's sitting out there if you want to ask her. I'm not sure. I was working. You got any knowledge of Ray Ring? Just from this. Do you smoke marijuana? No. You ever do it? I've tried it before. Let me just read you an interesting paragraph from an interview with Mr. Ray Ring. Wyndham writes this paragraph. I asked him if he knows Mark Abbott. He said he knows who he is but doesn't like him. He said he's a racist and he'll kill any black who's dated a white girl and would kill any girlfriend of his who dated a black. He said Abbott has some real asshole friends and he said they're mean and capable of killing someone. He said they are Kevin Williams and Gary Arnzen. Abbott, Williams, and Arnzen all smoke marijuana, get drunk, want to fight. They get mean. I used to be like that. Years back, I used to be like to go out and get drunk. I never have had a habit of smoking marijuana, though. I don't like it. It puts me to sleep. You don't like to fight and beat up on folk? I used to. Not no more. I've tried to straighten my life up since I've been married. I've got my kids and my wife is expecting now. Real quickly, some things to take note of. Kevin Williams said he never left the Howell party. Secondly, he never mentioned that Mark Abbott came to pick him up at that party. In fact, he said he did not talk to Mark Abbott the night of the murder. And he left out all the details about where he and Mark went and what they did first thing the next morning. We'll save that for a future episode. Kevin did not tell the truth in his first opportunity under oath. Lowe's and Rosner picked up on it, but there wasn't much they could do with it. These depositions were full of interesting information. Unfortunately, we don't have time to play reenactments of all of them, so I'm just going to jump in and do some quick summaries here. 
In his deposition, Matt Abbott, Mark's twin, denied reporting the crime to the sheriff's department that night. In fact, he said he didn't hear about the murder for a couple of days. He told Lowe's that he was at his girlfriend's house the night of the murder, now an ex-girlfriend. I contacted her and she said at that point in time, they were in the middle of a breakup and she did not know specifics about the night of the murder. Matt said he owned two pickup trucks and not a car. He denied ever engaging in any twin switching to fool people, which is a false statement. I have records showing Mark had falsely used Matt's name in a traffic stop in Cape Girardeau previously. Lowe's had subpoenaed phone records from Matt and Mark Abbott and found that Kevin Williams placed two phone calls to Matt Abbott's workplace on November 7th. If you remember from a few minutes ago, Lowe's asked Kevin about these phone calls. There were five phone calls on November 11th, which was the same day that Mark Abbott's name was placed on the suspect list by Deputy Tom Beardsley. Matt said he had no recollection of what any of those phone calls were about. Matt said, quote, I can't remember who told me. It seemed like it was on the news or something, and somebody told me something. It was after it happened because I couldn't believe I didn't know about it. He continued, See, I didn't know about it for two or three days. I didn't know about it. Didn't even know he found her or nothing. Didn't know nothing about it. Didn't even know somebody got killed for two or three days. As far as I remember, it surprised me because I didn't know about it. Maybe it was a day or two days, but I couldn't believe I didn't know about it quicker or sooner. I never did get into it. He also stated he had never met Michelle. So let's move on to Glenna Pierce. We'll just review this again. But Glenna Pierce is the mother of Heather Pierce. Both women were at Country Nights Bar with Mark Abbott earlier that night, and it was their place that Mark eventually landed. She said Mark arrived around 11.30, which was later than normal, and she remembered Kevin Williams being there also. She said she asked Kevin why he arrived late, and he replied, quote, we didn't make our meeting place like we were supposed to, unquote. This establishes that Kevin was with Mark Abbott a couple of hours before the murder. Glennon and Heather Pierce would have no reason to lie about seeing Kevin at Country Nights Bar on November 7, 1992, but again, Kevin claimed he didn't talk to Mark that night, and that he was at the company party all night long until 1 or 1.30 a.m. Okay, moving on to Lyle Day now. In the deposition, he claimed it was the pregnancy and abortion that they were fighting about on the day Michelle jumped out of his truck and walked to the tanning salon. But it's clear in his deposition he was getting his days confused. Lowe's asked him what he did on the Friday night before the murder, and he talked about having a fight and then making up with her a day later and going on a date and staying with her at her trailer but it's simply not possible for the fight to have happened the Friday before the murder, which is what Lowe's was asking about, because Michelle had moved out of the trailer in late October. His description of the makeup date matches Michelle's entry of October 22nd, which has already been discussed. That's where she described Day as hurting her feelings. And based on these statements, it's pretty clear that this was around the time that Michelle first told Day she may have been pregnant. It's very possible they were still fighting about the pregnancy on November 5th or November 6th, but it's very unlikely she was still pregnant then, if she ever was. Two other interesting things came out of this deposition. One, he described his earlier drug distribution charges as a false story by a snitch. He said those charges were dropped, which is interesting. Secondly, he denied knowing Mark Abbott. Now let's jump to some interesting statements by law enforcement. Let's start with Deputy Brenda Shivitz. When we look back at this deposition with hindsight, there were some show-stopping moments. When Al Lowe's asked her about Tom Beardsley's report, she played off Beardsley's suspicion of Mark Abbott. Lowe's quoted a report which Beardsley stated Mark told a different story with Shivitz than what the witness had told him an hour or so before. Specifically, he left out the payphone interaction when he talked with Beardsley at his house. 
Lowe said, quote, Did anybody wonder why he would be varying with his stories? Or do you say that Tom is wrong when he says that he didn't tell you originally about the pedestrian at the bottom of the ramp? Shivitz responded, That was Tom's opinion that he put in his report. I didn't question Tom about it. That was just his opinion that he put in his report. Shivitz also told Lowe's that she'd interviewed Stacy Reed, and Stacy apparently confirmed that Josh was with Weisinger and Mangus, but said it would have to have been before January 8th of 1993, because that's when she was evicted from her apartment. Shivitz talked about the Roy Easter tip as well. If you remember way back in episode 1, I mentioned that Roy Easter had reported to the police that he saw a man near the crime scene around the time of the murder. He described the man as having long hair and a dark jacket and said he looked like a hitchhiker not far from the sales lot. Lowe's asked her about Easter's description, saying, quote, Doesn't that sound like one of Mark Abbott's buddies or friends at Kevin Williams? Unquote. She replied, I don't know Kevin Williams. Unquote. Shivitz further explained that Easter told the department he could have been off by as much as 30 minutes, to which Lowe's responded, if Mr. Easter is right, whoever was walking along there, that was about the time of the murder. Or if he's wrong five or ten minutes, it strikes me as quite significant. Then Lowe's asked her about the statement they'd received from Chuck Weisinger about the elaborate scheme they made up to tell the story on Josh for leniency. She said she wasn't aware if Wyndham or anyone had gone to talk to Weisinger. She told Lowe's that Wyndham told her he wasn't going to talk to Weisinger unless directed to do so. Lowe's asked, quote, you weren't interested to see whether you could get another story or a better story or anything like that? She replied, The sheriff didn't tell us to do that, so it's his investigation, she said. He asked, What did Bill say when you showed him the statements? She said, He wasn't impressed. He didn't say, Oh shit, or anything like that. He said, You got one, and we got one. And lastly, this next statement by Shevitz stands out for sure, because if it could ever be proven that she intentionally made this false statement, it would be grounds for perjury charges. Lowe's asked, You made notes as you went along, Mr. Shivitz? Yes, sir, she said. What did you do with them notes? She said, I transcribed them into my report. And he asked, Well, what has become of those notes? She said, After I double-checked them, I disposed of them. You've pitched them away? He asked. Yes, sir. What did you do a trick like that for? He asked. Once I make my notes and double-check them, I get rid of all that junk. In fact, Shivitz did not dispose of her notes. Now let's talk about the third major law enforcement officer involved in the original investigation. That would be Don Wyndham. Among other things, Wyndham was asked about the blood draw of Todd Mayberry. Wyndham told Lowe's that Mayberry didn't admit to anything, but Mayberry had liked her in that night at a party they had danced or talked together, and they were kind of together, and she had kissed Mayberry, and he had tried to kiss her again or something, and she pushed him away. He said, quote, He got mad and yelled and took off. That's why he was a suspect, unquote. But what I found most interesting from Wyndham was his response when Lowe's asked him why the informants were not polygraphed. Sean Mangus will take one, he said. Would you like him to? I would love him to. I'll go get him because I think he's telling the truth. Lowe's responded, that remains to be seen. Wyndham said, I haven't asked him to. Lowe said, None of these other snitches have been truth boxed either, have they? Wyndham replied, I would like to see every one of them, including your client, take one. If you would tell your client to take one, I will tell my snitches to take one, and we'll see who all tells the truth. 
I'll make that deal with you. All right, so let's move on to a few other law enforcement officers. Wes Jury, the jailer who released the twin, testified that Mark was wearing a dark blue sweatshirt that had a design on the front, which was different than the clothing described by Heather Pierce. Tom Beardsley, the chief deputy, said that Bill Farrow wasn't big on paperwork on this case and said he wondered about the statement Mark Abbott made about the rings. He said it struck him that it would be difficult to reach in and grab Michelle through a window rolled halfway up like he said. He said he himself could not have pulled Michelle as described by Abbott, but when asked by Lowe's why he wasn't treated as a suspect, Beardsley simply stated he was just trying to gather evidence. Roy Moore, who was with Rick Walter and the first officer to see Michelle's body, also said he didn't think you could fit your head and shoulders through the window. One arm, sure, but not your head and shoulders as described by Mark Abbott. And he testified that the twin who returned to the scene was in a car like a Monte Carlo or a Buick, an early 80s model. And when the twin left, he headed north on the interstate, not west on 77, the back way to avoid Scott City Police. All right, just a few more highlights to share with you. Christy Nail, the owner of the white car, could not have been more emphatic that her car was not moved. She was asked multiple times. She noted that the key was missing from the car for a period of time and was returned by Amanda Jury. But she said Josh never mentioned Michelle Lawless and she didn't think he knew her. One of the EMTs, Larry Ray, said something interesting. He told the court that Michelle's body was warm and clammy when he arrived. You may recall that Mark Abbott had said previously that the body was cold. So if, if Mark touched the body before the EMT, it wouldn't make sense that Michelle's body would be cold and then warm by the time the EMT arrived. Now I want to move on to something that is a very small thing, but maybe a really big thing. It comes from Dr. Robert Briner, who is the director of the SEMO Crime Lab. Now, Briner told Lowe's that none of the physical evidence collected matched Josh Kieser to the crime. Not prints, not blood, not bullets from guns tested by the county. In fact, he said that the samples taken were chemicals had illuminated spots as potential blood in Josh's jacket and Christy Nail's car were so small they could not be confirmed as blood at all. Special Prosecutor Kenny Hulsoff tried to imply that because the spots were found inside Josh's jacket that you could eliminate several other types of triggers of the luminol glow, such as rust or other types of materials. But Briner was quick to point out that the chemicals are very sensitive and even vegetable oil could glow under a black light. You might recall that Josh had fast food within an hour or so of his arrest. Such warnings would not matter in nine months or so when Holsoff would stand before a jury giving his closing statements. Briner also said toxicology report came back clean. No drugs were in her system, but a trace of alcohol was detected. But those are not the things that stood out to me as odd in Briner's testimony. As he was winding down his statements about gun tests, he said, quote, We also had a knife and a brass tube with a black residue on the inside. The brass tube and black residue has cocaine, but it doesn't say it here. I believe we found cocaine on that. What significance? I have no idea. We said, do you want drug analysis on that? We said we already found it, and they said, no, that's not what we're interested in at this point. So clearly the Scott County Sheriff's Department was not interested in any kind of drug motive. And instead of drilling down and asking more questions, Lowe's made a crass joke about drug use in Scott County. A few minutes later in testimony, when Lowe's was asking him if he had anything else that they should know, Brunner said, quote, let me look here. As I told you, I do think we analyzed that black tube and found cocaine, but nobody was interested, so I don't know. I may not even have it in here. 
I'd have to go back and look, but I don't think I put it in here since nobody seemed to be too interested and we had plenty of things to do of things that they were interested in, I guess. So they knew that Michelle was hanging around with Lyle Day, who had been arrested, then cleared on drug distribution charges. They had witnesses telling them that Day was a drug user. They knew Mark Abbott had several DWIs, and they heard from one of the jailhouse informants that Mark Abbott was a drug user. They knew Michelle was going to Sigma Tau parties where drugs were being consumed. They knew she had a clean toxicology. Knowing she had a clean toxicology, why would they not want that tube with traces of cocaine further tested? If that tube was used to snort cocaine, there's a good chance it would have had DNA on it. There's a possibility it could have had fingerprints. As I've stated before, Michelle's friends said they didn't know Michelle to use drugs, at least not hard drugs like cocaine. Even if this was Michelle's tube used for drugs, it would indicate a secret lie, perhaps, and lead down other investigative avenues. When I found this in the deposition, I submitted a public records request to the SEMO Crime Lab, who told me that the state of Missouri kept their records. I wanted to know a chain of custody on that brass tube. I wanted to know where it was found and what happened to it. Rick Walter, who would reopen the case many years later, told me there was no tube in the evidence kept at the Sheriff's Department. I wanted a complete chain of custody log on evidence in the case, but the state of Missouri rejected my request, saying the investigation was still open and not available for public inspection. I tracked down Dr. Briner, but he had no recollection of the tube. All right, so last but not least, let's hear what Bill Farrell had to tell Josh's defense attorneys. It was fascinating to read his testimony. He was trying to play off his role in the case and put the responsibility on his officers. Yet in other testimony, other officers clearly stated that Farrell was in charge. Shivitz, Wyndham, Chambers, Beardsley, they all said Bill was calling the shots. Here is a reenactment of some of his testimony. Your full name, please, sir. William. F. Farrell. You're the sheriff of Scott County? Yes, sir. How long have you been the sheriff? 17 years. Bill, I want to talk about this Keezer boy and the Lawless girl in that episode. And we'll primarily talk about, unless some other date comes up, the events beginning the 7th of November into the 8th, which would be 1.15, 1.30 in the morning, and thereafter. Now, you got a call, didn't you? And you went out there? Yes, sir. When you got out there, about what time did you get there? Probably about 15 minutes after I got the initial call from my dispatcher. You got something you want to refer to as when you got there? It's approximately 2 o'clock. I don't have it exactly. In the records, and I want to ask you about it, and if you don't know, I guess we'll get Brenda Shivitz here the last thing this afternoon. Mr. and Mrs. Householder came in and reported to your deputy, a Mr. Jury, I believe, about 1.25 a.m. on the 8th of November. Then there's a notation on some records that a Matt Abbott came in and reported something, and then later it's claimed that Mark did it. Did you look into that or direct anybody to look into that? I talked to the dispatcher who had that information on what we'd refer to as a TM. You knew, or I assume you knew, you know most anything there in Scott County. You knew those two boys were twins, didn't you? Yes, sir. They look essentially alike. Maybe one's a little fatter than the other. Yes, sir. And you know their parents, Larry and Reba. They were in the Shell Station up there in the store in Scott City? Yes, sir. Now, 
in the notations, I read the deputy, or at least one of them, or the dispatcher, or whatever you call him, said he was pretty damn sure it was Matt. You think he was wrong, and you misheard? Or what do you know? The only discussions that I had with him was that he was wrong. The person that came in said he was Mark, told him where he lived, and the dispatcher just thought he knew one from the other and thought it was Matt. You think that's what it was? Yes. Okay. Now, when you got out there to the car, obviously you're around there, a lot of police and ambulance and all that sort of folks around there at 2 in the morning. I want to ask you, where was the window on the driver's side? Was it up? Down? What I'm referring to is one of the deputies said when he went out there, Officer Roy Moore, was he one of your deputies? He's a Benton officer. He said the window was 5 to 7 inches down. My question to you is, do you remember noting about the left window? I don't remember. All right. After you were there and looked it over with a bunch of other officers, what'd you do next, Bill? I went to Lawless home. All right. That brings me to the point somewhere along the line, somebody got a diary that this little girl wrote. You know where that diary is? It's been returned to her family at this point. Did you make copies of it? Yes, sir. I believe Miss Shivitz did. I didn't. And the stuff furnished, we didn't get anything. Any copies of any of this stuff made of the diary, other than some reference to the diary? Uh-huh. Taking the diary, did it lead you to any leads that you chased down? The only thing that diary did that I myself have first-hand knowledge of was just the names that were listed in the diary were checked into because at that point, everybody was a suspect and we didn't have any idea of who it was. And so we were just looking at that as a point of reference for names. Where did you go next other than contacting the lawless? I went back to the scene and then went to Sykeston to interview some names that we had received at the scene as a possible boyfriend and some people who she had been with earlier in the evening. And that would be Lamb and fellows like that? Yes, sir. Reading through this, I just wanted to know. I thought it was amazing and inconsistent, but this Abbott boy, when he first says it, he didn't talk about anything down there around the cut mark. That's the outside telephone. Then he mentions a Hispanic-looking person wanted to get some gas, apparently talks to Wyndham and Overby, and Overby says, talking about the Abbott being down there, quote, Abbott stated as he made the call and realized 911 didn't work, three black males came up to him and wanted some gas, period, end quotes. And then later he talks about a Hispanic. And first of all, he didn't mention the fellow running off at the ramp as he's driving up on the ramp. Has that all been checked into? I didn't take those statements from him, Mr. Lowe's, and I'm sure it's been checked into by the officers that he made those statements to. You didn't wonder about that, or did you read that? Yes, sir. I, I wondered about it. You're getting right down to it. I want to ask you. Brenda Shivitz, I take it, had more to do with this than you did. Is that a fair statement? Yes, sir. And taking statements and that sort of thing. As we wind down this episode, the sixth in this series so far, it's a good time to tell you that I've contacted Bill Farrell three times for comment. The first time I reached him, he said he wasn't available to talk just then and asked me to reach out later. He did not respond to two other contacts. But I'm going to leave you with a question that sits at the heart of this podcast and my investigation into this injustice. This question's at the heart of why Josh Keezer unjustly lost 16 years of his life in one of the worst prisons in America. It's at the heart of why Wade Howard spent only 15 years in prison for a murder he did commit. 
and why Leota Groh spent her free time at parole hearings. The question that's about to be asked lies at the heart of why in 2013 Marvin Lawless would have to bury his daughter for a second time. Al Lowe's asked the question, and Bill Farrell answered it. I was just wondering, a lot of people were vampired and printed, but Mark Abbott, neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or printed. Why was that not done? I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. I, I don't know. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegon, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe. We appreciate you listening. We thank you for subscribing. And if you can't subscribe, you can help the cause by sharing this podcast with your friends. You can leave us a good review, or you can join our Facebook group. Thank you for whatever support you can provide. Next time on The Lawless Files. And then I kind of came to, and I realized that it wasn't just my mother that was screaming, that it was me, and that I was screaming it wasn't me. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I didn't do it.